Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 24th of July 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, six-month countdown to post-crash war and recession exit strategy hinges on manufacturing revival. Lisa, before we begin, a couple of quick updates, though. So on the bail-in campaign, we've got a big breakthrough, which is that uh, none other than Dr John Hewson, the former leader of the Liberal Party and opposition leader, who um, uh, Keating beat in 1993. Hewson is an expert in the financial system. I largely uh, disagree with what he definitely used to stand for anyway, but it doesn't matter. Um, Bailey is a great unifier because poll anyone, do you want banks to be able to steal your money? And they'll, they'll say no. So John Hewson has weighed in with a tweet um, insisting that the, the bail-in amendment bill, to clarify this, should be... Uh, pass. You got he, the tweet there. He said Parliament should endorse the banking amendment deposits bill to explicitly rule out the possibility of bail-in where authorities would allow banks to convert your deposits to shares in a banking crisis should be a no-brainer for any government. It is absolutely a no-brainer and the fact that the government's resisting it proves that there's there's something else afoot. But anyway, this 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 could be, provide the extra pressure that, that helps actually get this bill passed and then we can defeat bail-in in Australia. Now, the Parliament has, sitting has been cancelled. The first sitting of, of August has been cancelled. Um, that actually buys us more time to have a, an inquiry with hearings. So keep making calls to senators on the committee, to your Member of Parliament and all senators, demand they have hearings into this, right? And we can, we can bring enough attention to bear to actually get it defeated. Um, second issue. Today's Friday. We have one week to go before the inquiry that George Christensen's committee on uh, diversifying trade and investment um, expires in terms of having uh, the, the submissions, the, the ability to make submissions expires, right? So one week to go. We're telling everyone, if you support the idea of a national development bank, which we'll talk about more in a minute, make a submission to that inquiry. It's very, very important, right? You've got a week to do it. Please do it. Mm. The details are, are below the, on the YouTube video and on our website. Now on to our first topic. Six-month countdown to post-crash war. So we're in the midst of an ongoing global financial meltdown uh, and always one of the preferred methods to um, keep control into such a scenario from the uh, informal financial empire headquartered in Wall Street and the City of London is to get a war going. And that is well and truly on the cards. There's been a parade of US leaders baying for war with China. Just in the last few weeks, we've had Secretary of De US Secretary of Defence Mark Esper uh, declaring success in implementing the new national defence strategy, which declares China, then Russia, our top strategic competitors. We've had National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien saying that China wants to remake the world in its own image. But at the same time, he said America understands that lasting peace comes through strength. We are the strongest nation on earth, he said, and we will not bend to the CCP. So might makes right. The FBI Director Christopher Wray continued in the same vein. He said, China is engaged in a whole-of-state effort to become the world's only superpower by any means necessary, where in reality, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, 
the United States declared in their defence strategy that their, quote, first objective is to prevent the re-emergence of a new rival. So in reality, uh, being a superpower is the sole right of the USA. And China doesn't even want to be a world superpower. It, 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 nowhere has it stated that ambition whatsoever. It just wants the world to be a multipolar world in which mm. every country's influence is respected. Then you had Assistant Secretary of State for the Asia-Pacific region, David Stilwell, who announced that the US could sanction Chinese officials for actions in the South China Sea, meaning they would take a side in what should be left as a regional uh, dispute to be resolved. And they're also increasing their spy flights along China's coast and running exercises with two massive aircraft carrier groups in the region. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has said that the US will not allow Beijing to treat the South China Sea as its maritime empire. Yet they have no problem with the UK after Brexit declaring its Global Britain program, which is described by top Royal Navy people as nothing less than a new era of British maritime power. Yet that is on a global scale by their own and definition. And the British have a warship in the South China Sea. What the hell is it doing there? Mm. The Britain's on the other side of the world. And no surprise, Aspie, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, weighed in on this on 16th of July. Uh, Peter Jennings on Sky News warned of a possible military exchange in Asia because he said China is provoking its neighbours. We'll just run that clip. And um, the risk of that leading to a military exchange, a, a shooting of a, an aircraft out of the sky or a sinking of a ship, I think is actually high and probably higher than people realise. So it's a dangerous time and, and um, I, I think it's got a number of governments around the world seriously alarmed at what might take place um, in the second half of this year and moving into uh, 2021. Elisa, what you've just gone through, including that Peter Jennings clip, you said at the beginning, this is th these leaders, are, these US leaders, etc., are baying for war with China. No, baying is what bloodhounds do. They are braying for war. That's what donkeys do. <laughs> and they want us to be donkeys and go along with it. Peter Jennings is talking about China being the provocateur in the South China Sea. Australians, there is a huge amount of Australian exports that go through that sea every year and never threatened. There's no threatening of any proper shipping in the South China Sea because most of it's going to China. China's no threat to its own trade, right? It's when America wants to sail these massive aircraft group, groups through there that pack enough power they could blow up the whole world. China naturally goes, well, we have an issue with that. But we've just had an incident yesterday where the ABC reported and other outlets reported here that the Chinese warships confronted Australia's... They said Australia's ships. It was actually Australian warships there. Now it's been revised because the military has admitted, no, no confrontation happened. There was, there was a communication between the two types of ships. It was a routine encounter. A routine encounter is all it was, yet it was reported as a confrontation. ABC has quietly changed its article on that. And what it tells you, though, is we're in a very dangerous period. Mm. The danger is not that there will be a confrontation as much as the danger is there will be a claim of a confrontation. This is like the, this, the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964 that America claimed that the Vietnamese had um, damaged one of their ships, right? Led to the Vietnamese war and it was all rubbish. It was all lies. It's all been proven to be lies. That's the sort of position that we're in again now in that area there, right? Um, there's all sorts of claims being made about China all the time. Just one other I wanted to highlight. The other day, the Washington Post released cables that it had reported back in April. And those cables in April was, they claimed the US State Department in 2018 had sent back cables to Washington 
um, expressing safety concerns about the Wuhan lab. Now, the Washington Post report in April about those cables directly led to our government calling for an inquiry into China, right, insinuating this came from the lab. The cables have been released. They say nothing of the kind, right? Those cables from 2018 actually complemented the Wuhan lab. And what they do show is how friendly and cooperative America and China were as recently as January 2018. And you read it and it sounds like a foreign country, a foreign era you're talking about because there's, there's so much enmity now that has been, this, is, this relationship has been destroyed, not from, China didn't initiate it. The American side, the, the maniacs around the Trump administration have, a, have destroyed this relationship and made the world so much more dangerous and we are foolishly going along with it. And, this, and when Peter Jennings, who has done more in Australia to get a war going between us and China, is predicting it in six months, take it seriously because they are the kind of people who will orchestrate it within six months and make all these kind of claims, right? This, if you worry about a financial crisis, do not want, you do not want a war. It will make a financial crisis, a pandemic, look like child's play, right. right? We have to stop this and Australians have to wise up to what our side is doing. And after this break, we're going to talk about the domestic aspect of the push for war. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're discussing a six-month countdown to war and we're not just talking about world war here, which could be thermonuclear war, obviously, but we're talking also about uh, the potential for civil war in various nations. Now, uh, a lieutenant colonel, a former lieutenant colonel in the Australian Defence Force, David Kilcullen, wrote an article in The Australian on the 30th of May and he said this, Coronavirus is threatening to ignite a tinderbox of grievances in the US. The growing parallels with Iraq, Lebanon and Somalia are real and disturbing. If the first wave of the coronavirus tsunami was its health effect, the second, economic devastation, may be worse. But there is a third wave coming. The possibility of armed conflict towards the end of this year when the combined health and economic impacts of the crisis will peak amid the most violently contested presidential election in memory. So he's talking about in the domestic US situation. And this is something that was also foreshadowed by the Christchurch killer Brenton Tarrant, who in his manifesto said his aim was to create a crucible of crisis by destabilising society with radical, violent change. Especially said, the United States. Yes, he said civil war in the so-called melting pot that is the United States should be a major aim in overthrowing the global power structure. And what we've seen earlier in uh, the year in May after the murder of George Floyd with the US riots uh, is a, an arising of more people like Tarrant who described himself as an accelerationist. And accelerationists bring together a combination of people from the left and the right who deliberately push the collapse of the social order in order to bring about change. And uh, for example, uh, you have the Boogaloo movement, uh, which means Boogaloo in their lingo is a great turmoil that breaks the power of the authoritarian state. And you'll see some footage in the background. They wear their Hawaiian shirts and so forth. But this kind of violence justifies a crackdown and that crackdown was prepared by the aforementioned David Kilcullen who was recruited to the US Defence and State Departments by the worst neoconservatives under the George W Bush government 
And this guy had a major role in every theatre of the War on Terror. And in a 2004 paper, uh, we, he basically said that in order to counter terrorism, we can't use the old methods. We have to use the methods that we pioneered in Afghanistan and Iraq, where you actually have to take on an entire society which can share many of the grievances of terrorists. And this includes so-called domestic terrorists that you're seeing in many cases, not just like Tarrant, but in the United States there's been many cases of um, local incidents that are now defined as a type of terrorism. Um, so he defines insurgency as a popular grassroots movement that seeks to overthrow the status quo. And, and the Pentagon... Actually, has a, his, his definition is so broad, it includes yeah. legitimate political action as well as protests. illegitimate violence, etc. And the Pentagon is using this approach that he defined um, to tackle the battlegrounds of the future which they define as large urban centres, which as population grows and the economy crumbles and natural disasters occur, become the major threat. And I'm just going to roll a clip which comes from The Intercept. And this was only obtained through Freedom of Information, but you'll get a sense of what he's talking about. Megacities are complex systems where people and structures are compressed together in ways that defy both our understanding of city planning and military doctrine. It is an ecosystem that demands a highly agile and adaptive force to successfully operate within. Social structures will be equally challenged if not dysfunctional. As historic ways of life clash with modern living, ethnic and racial differences are forced to live together and criminal networks offer opportunity for the growing mass of unemployed. This becomes the nervous system of non-nation state unaligned individuals and organizations that live and work in the shadows of national rule. Where physical domains can be seen, digital domains will have limitless potential to breed and expand without limit. Digital security and trade will be increasingly threatened by sophisticated illicit economies and decentralized syndicates of crime to give adversaries global reach at an unprecedented level. This will add to the complexities of human targeting, as a proportionally smaller number of adversaries intermingle with a larger and increasing number of citizens. The scale and density of these domains is daunting. In a city of 10 million, where you hold the support of 99% of the population, the remaining 1% represents a threat of 100,000. It is an environment of convergence, hidden amongst the enormous scale and complexity of the megacity. These are the future breeding grounds, incubators, and launching pads for adversaries and hybrid threats. Linked globally, these are man-made labyrinths that provide refuge and movement across the vast sections of these cities where alternate forms of governance have taken control. The advice of doctrine, from Sun Tzu to current field manuals, has provided two fundamental options. Avoid the cities, or establish a cordon to either wait out the adversary, or drain the swamp of non-combatants and engage the remaining adversaries in high-intensity conflict within. Even our counterinsurgency doctrine, honed in the cities of Iraq and the mountains of Afghanistan, is inadequate to address the sheer scale of population in the future urban reality. From the streets of Aachen to the Citadel and Way, we have defeated adversaries who attempted to use urban terrain to their advantage. Urban conflict is written deep into the Army's histories. But in tomorrow's conflict, these megacities are orders of magnitude greater in complexity, and our current options do not meet strategic ends. Our future operations must allow us to rapidly return the city to the people. They will be too large and complex to isolate or cordon in their entirety. Yet our soldiers will have to operate within these ecosystems with minimal disruption and flow. Our current and past strategies can no longer hold. We are facing environments that the masters of war never foresaw. 
We are facing a threat that requires us to redefine doctrine and the force in radically new and different ways. The future army will confront a highly sophisticated urban-centric threat that will require that urban operations become the core requirement for the future land force. The threat is clear. Our direction remains to be defined. The future is urban. And you can add to that the increased militarization of police in big US cities, but also the increased surveillance that we're seeing everywhere carried out by not only governments, but private entities. The thing with that video, just to re-emphasize, that was a Pentagon video, mm. right? They are the ones that are putting this up there. The, the thing I want people to understand that when, when they're talking about this issue, the Pentagon and David Kilcullen, et cetera, they're actually not saying, here's a, pro here's a growing problem and we have to solve it through actually addressing the cause of the problem, which is economic breakdown, the, the collapsing infrastructure in countries, bad health outcomes. No, no, no. They're saying, here's the problem. Here's how we can be better at policing it with, with greater military capability, etc. Right? That's why your point earlier was important. They've, when they talk about all this stuff that's going along around the Boogaloo Boys and all this kind of stuff, you know there's an intelligence agency role in that stuff. There's a provocateur element because it justifies law enforcement and government moving in this direction, right? And that's why what we're going to talk about in the next segment, Elisa, mm. is so important because everything we're doing is about let's just, let's address the cause of societal breakdown, which is the economic problem, and then you won't have these issues. Yeah, exactly. And we've written a series of articles on this topic if you want to find out more in our Australian Alert Service newsletter. And we'll put a link to a collection of those articles in the info box below. If you're looking at it on YouTube, you can contact us if you're watching it on community TV. But what, what's happening here is you have the use of old imperial British methods such as the gang counter gang approach of population control which was pioneered by General Brigadier Frank Kitson in Kenya, later used in Northern Ireland. You've got the old British psychological warfare outfit Tavistock right in the middle of this, the Five Eyes intelligence agencies with the CIA and all these operations involved cultural warfare outfits and of course using Facebook and these other media as a big tool to spread all of this. So find out more, contact us and we'll be right back in a moment to discuss the solutions. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now discussing recession exit strategy hinges on manufacturing revival. So yesterday, as most people would have seen, our treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, made some announcements about the increasing levels of our debt and deficit. Well, what he said, Elisa, um, he, he almost wet himself on national television. <laughs> um, look, these are big figures. He emphasised that um, with a quavery voice. We have $850 billion in government debt. We have uh, $80 billion deficit this year. But... It is not record figures. We'll put up this chart that Melbourne Uni economist Warwick Smith used a few months ago to highlight what Australia did before World War II to pay down the high debt of the Depression versus what we did after World War II. And before World War II, the, the Joe Lyons government tried to balance the budget. And yes, that did help get the debt down a bit, but not as successfully as what we did after World War II, where without budget deficits, surpluses. In fact, we use budget deficits mm. every year except one. We got the debt down much more successfully by growing the economy. Mm. Now, Frydenberg is saying that. They're talking the language of growing the economy. they got no clue how to do it compared to the way we did it after World War um, II. Why? Because we, as we showed on a show here a few months ago, we built 
the Snowy Mountain Scheme, right, we started that at a time when we had the greatest debt in our history and it was a 15% of GDP project. It would be equivalent of a $300 billion project today. You think this, this guy, Josh Frydenberg, is capable of announcing a $300 billion project? No way. He would say, no way can we afford that. Well, we did afford it after World War II, and by the time we, finishing build, we finished building it, our economy had grown tenfold thanks to that kind of investment. Mm. Now, we want to talk a bit about uh, manufacturing because there's an outfit um, which is called the, Australia's in, the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work, which has worked with Australian unions, the peak union body, to put together a national economic reconstruction plan. And there was a report yesterday from the ABC uh, citing Dr Jim Stanford from uh, this institute. And he talked about the fact there's been actually a very big uptick in manufacturing, producing parts and components that we can no longer get um, as we need them from overseas because of the coronavirus. But there hasn't been a massive impact on our economy and our output because manufacturing is such a small proportion of our economy. In the 1960s, it was over 25%, but today it's probably around or less than 5%. Um, now, they've put some graphs up, which I want to show, because they have ranked OECD countries, which are the developed countries, based on manufacturing self-sufficiency. In the first graph here, you can see... Uh, that Australia is last, number 36 on the list. There's a few missing out of that list, but you see it at the bottom there, where we're producing two-thirds of what we use in terms of manufactured goods. Uh, and then the second graph there is the gross manufacturing output. Again, we're on the bottom. The third graph uh, shows that in terms of what we're importing and exporting, we're yeah. in the negative domain because we have to import such a lot more. And that relates to another graph that we'll put up here um, which shows in the, um, the darker blue colours the manufacturing products that we're having to import into the country and the very yeah, minor... We, we export $58 billion of simple manufacturers, $37 billion of, of um, elaborate manufacturers, but we import $216 billion of elaborate manufacturers and $62 billion of simple manufacturers. So our, our trade balance in manufacturing is abysmal, as that previous one has shown, and it's all self-inflicted. So the analysis of Dr Stanford says that Australia's got one of the most under, underdeveloped manufacturing sectors of any industrial country and they found that this assumption that it's much cheaper to do things in China or Thailand or some other low-wage country to be absolutely false. Well, uh, look at Japan and South Korea in those graphs, the middle graph, look how they are high-wage economies. Look at their manufacturing output. Yeah, so um, talk a bit about the union report though and what we should do. Well, the union report is well-meaning, it's promising. Um, they want funds to invest in both infrastructure and in uh, manuf expanding manufacturing. They, pay way they, they emphasise way too much sustainability and renewable stuff. It's, it's, it's a bit too ideological in that sense. But what they're proposing, the direction is fine, except it's just too small. They're, they're, they're proposing a billion here, two billion there, half a billion there um, on this kind of stuff and maybe an extra $30 billion a year in infrastructure, we need a lot more than that. So what we're calling on Australian unions to do is support the campaign that we're running for a national development bank. We've, we've got legislation that's being in the process of prepared for Parliament now, which will be a $100 billion bank. That, that's the capital that can invest a trillion dollars into these sort of things, into infrastructure and into the people, the in, thousands of innovators out there who just need backing to go and start manufacturing. That's how we'll turn this around. 
much bigger. They've got to, the union's got to think bigger. Politicians got to think bigger. Everybody's got to think bigger. We're putting up this, the, the policies and the legislation, Elisa, to do it. And, and if you if you're in the unions, get involved. Get your union involved. Support this this policy that we're we're running. And it's one of the, it's a point people can make to this George Christensen inquiry I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Right, make a submission by the end of the the week next week demanding they go with a National Development Bank that can do it on this kind of scale. Yeah, so keep harassing your Member of Parliament, everyone else you can think of about this. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Lisa. And join us again next week for this next show. Mm -hmm.